0: Turn to 2 Kings chapter 7, 2 Kings chapter 7. Last week, we read that God sent the Syrian army a strong delusion, one that had them hearing things that weren't there, namely the chariots and horses and a sound of a great host of an army. And the Syrians supposed that the king of Israel had hired out the Egyptian army and the Hittite armies to come upon them, when in fact no such thing happened. And so the Syrians fled in fear, and they left everything behind, food, drink, clothing, silver, gold, all of those things that in the face of fear suddenly mean nothing. And in the midst of that, we read of a story about four lepers who were about ready to starve to death. They could choose to sit where they were until they died or to go to Samaria And die there in the famine with the other people. Or to surrender themselves to the Syrian army where they might also die, but they might live. And God showed them that there was another way. There was another answer. And that was the way of grace. They were using logic, weren't they? We don't have food and we're going to die if we don't eat. And if we go somewhere there's not food, we're going to die there. And if we fall into the hands of the Syrians, we're the enemy. They may kill us. We're of no use to them. We would be a drag on them. But they might let us live. And God set all of that aside and showed them the way of grace. And we read how he provided for their needs and then some more on top of that, what I like to call gravy. I'm going to reread verse 8 now. You should be in 2 Kings chapter 7. I'll reread verse 8 and then we'll go right into verse 9 in a moment. And when these lepers came to the uttermost part of the camp, they went into one tent and did eat and drink and carried thence silver and gold and raiment and went and hid it and came again and entered into another tent and carried thence also and went and hid it. Now those lepers, and this is where we left off, those lepers having received good at God's hand and having hidden what they received would now make another choice. And what we're going to see is this is a better choice. Verse 9, then they said one to another, we do not well. We do not well. I love this answer. Let's look at what else they said. This day is a day of good tidings and we hold our peace. If we tarry till the morning light, some mischief will come upon us. Now, therefore, come that we may go and tell the king's household. They said we do not well. They realized that the hiding of God's treasure is a bad thing. In fact, when they say this day is a day of good tidings, you notice they did not say this day is a day of great earthly riches or this is a day of much clothing, but it was a day of good tidings, which means good news. Do you see the spiritual application here? After all, who were these men? We don't know their names, but we know they were lepers, and their disease was just as incurable as our sin. And what did God give those lepers? He gave them food. That's right. It was gracious. He gave them food just as Jesus is the bread of life, and we receive him as our necessary food. He gave them drink just as we are given to drink of the water of life freely. He gave them silver, which speaks of redemption. If you've been with us in Old Testament studies before, silver is the price of redemption. And gold, which tells of the deity of God, that is, his Godness. And then raiment, clothing, which speak of the robes of righteousness that we receive when we become Christians and were shed of our leprous clothes those sinful clothes. You see, those are good tidings, aren't they? And we're not to hide those good tidings from others. The gospel, that's good tidings. The Bible says it's good news. And we're not to hide that good news from others. Do you want to know who hides things like this from others? Who wants us to do that? It's Satan. He wants us to do as these lepers were doing and hold their peace. Satan doesn't care based on our knowledge of him in the Bible that churches all over the world are meeting this morning. He doesn't particularly care that people are gathered together and dressed up nicely and are on their best behavior in most cases. But what he doesn't want is for this to be taught If all of those other things can happen and the Bible is not taught, then Satan's good. People mistake the meeting together in a religious building for something spiritual when God's word is absent, when it's not being taught. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 3 through 4. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 4, Paul wrote, But if our gospel be hid, you hear that? It is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world, that's Satan, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Now you know who influenced those lepers initially to hide what God gave them. So when they said, we do not well, that was nothing short of God's spirit convincing them, hey, you're wrong. By my hand, I gave you these things that you didn't have before and you didn't deserve them. You were about to die hopeless and helpless. Don't hide them. You tell others about them. They said we do not well, and they said if we tarry till the morning light, meaning if we wait until even early morning tomorrow, if we sleep on it, some mischief will come upon us. That word mischief means harm. It could be a robbery or a fire or being overrun with wild beasts or perhaps even their own deaths. And they said, we're going to go to the king's household. We need to tell the king's household. And from that point on, the responsibility of informing those below the king's household would be with the king's household. Verse 10, so they came and called unto the porter of the city, and they told them, saying, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no man there. Neither the voice of man, but horses tied, and asses tied, and the tents as they were. Now being lepers, they could not enter the city in their condition. So they told the porters, and a porter is a keeper of a gate. That's the primary meaning of the word. They told the porters of the city, presumably at the gates, about what happened and then those porters could go tell others. And telling the story this way suggests very strongly that the Syrians had fled and did so on foot because they left their horses and their asses tied and the tents as they were. In other words, they didn't pack up, they ran. They left the very animals that would have been used to carry them in battle and to carry their supplies with them. Verse 11, and he called the porters and they told it to the king's house within. So you see, you have a porter of the city, the one who's there at whatever gate they used or whatever gate they came to. The lepers can't enter the city, so they tell the porter what happened in the Syrian camp. And then verse 11, and he, that's that porter, called the porters These are other porters. These are other gatekeepers. And they told it to the king's house within. So the city gate porter told the porters of the king's palace, Hey, here's what happened. And you guys go tell the king. So that's how that fell out. Now remember, this is King Jehoram. He is not a spiritual giant. He is a spiritual midget, if he's spiritual at all. Verse 12, And the king arose in the night, And said unto his servants, I will now show you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we be hungry. Therefore are they gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, when they they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. How foolish is this king? To get into the city... All the Syrians would have had to do is stay in their camp and continue to besiege or surround Samaria. The people were starving to death. They were selling doves, dung, and the head of a donkey for a great price. They were about to run out of food. In fact, I contend they were out of food. And now they're resorting to unclean things to sustain themselves. And what's next? Cannibalism, isn't it? The Syrians could have continued this siege and let the Samarians starve to death and then they could have just marched right in the city and taken whatever it was they wanted. There was no need to lay a trap like this, especially to leave their animals and all of their goods in the tent and risk something happening to them. Now, could this king just not believe for once that God delivered Samaria from her enemies Couldn't he just say, well, praise God, we've been surrounded by the Syrians, and God has delivered them into our hands by running them off somehow and leaving their good stuff here, their food, namely. Could he not just believe what Elisha had prophesied about the fine flour and the barley that would be sold dirt cheap the very next day? No. He had to come up with his own conspiracy theory That went against what God was doing. In Acts chapter 12. Now we'll preface this by saying. We have a king. Who has heard word about something that is an answered prayer. If from no one else Elisha. And this is how he responds to that answered prayer. In Acts chapter 12. God had delivered Simon Peter from King Herod's prison. And I want you to listen to verses 12 through 17. And when he had considered the thing, that's Peter, he came to the house of Mary the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a damsel came to hearken named Rhoda. And when she, not the one from the 70s movie with the dark black hair. This was an ancestor. And when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness, but ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. She went and told the people, our prayers had been answered. And they said unto her, thou art mad. But she constantly affirmed that it was even so. Then said they, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But he, beckoning them with the hand to hold their peace, declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Go show these things unto James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. These people who had been praying, now we don't know what they were praying for, but they were praying... And I'm sure in in somebody's prayer, it was, Lord, would you please free Simon Peter from the prison? Rhoda knew him by voice, so they were familiar with Simon Peter. And God delivers Simon Peter from the prison to the very door of these people who are praying. And rather than believe Rhoda, who with her own eyes saw him and with her own ears heard his voice at the door, and ran inside and told them, rather than believe him, they said, oh, it can't be, it's got to be his angel Now, how far-fetched is that? To them, it was far-fetched to believe that God had physically delivered Peter from prison and to the door. But it wasn't far-fetched for them to believe it was his angel. These were Christians who had been praying. And God answered somebody's prayer, not sure whose. And yet these praying Christians doubted their own sister, Rhoda, who said Peter was at the door. You know, when God answers prayer, some people mistake it for what they call luck. They say, I got lucky. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary's primary definition for luck is a force that brings good fortune or adversity. So if it brought good fortune, they'd call it good luck. If it brings adversity, they'd call it bad luck. I don't believe in luck at all. But I do believe in God's providence. And I believe in consequences, both direct and indirect. When God answers your prayer, don't ever say, Wow, I got lucky today. Just thank God for His gracious provision. That's what you do. Somebody says, Well, how did you come into that? Just tell them God was good to me. How'd you pay your house off so quickly? Because God has been good to me. He's given me the finances to be able to do it and the, the sound biblical knowledge to know, to direct those expenses toward the things I owe instead of creating new debt for myself. Anybody? Yeah. And don't do, as some of these in the praying house, doubting when God answers prayer. The king of Samaria wouldn't know an answered prayer if it slapped him in the forehead. He's willing to make up a conspiracy theory rather than saying, look what God's done. What did that maniac of Gadara, what instructions did he get from Jesus after Jesus saved him and he was clothed and sitting at Jesus' feet in his right mind? That, the maniac wanted to go with Jesus. And Jesus didn't give him a fancy assignment. He said, go and tell what great things God has done for thee or in another gospel Go and tell what compassion God has had on thee. That's all I want you to do. You go tell what happened right here. That's all. You don't have to make up this big glorious event. Just say, this is what God has done for me. Now verse 13, and one of his servants, that is the king's servant, one of his servants answered and said, let some take, I pray thee, five of the horses that remain which are left in the city. Behold, they are as all the multitude of Israel that are left in it. Behold, I say, they are even as all the multitude of the Israelites that are consumed. So this parenthetical phrase here was talking about how many horses there were in the city. They had a lot of horses. And let us send and see. So the verse is telling us that the servant suggests to to the king of Israel... Hey, you've you've mentioned that the Syrians may be laying in wait for us and that they left all their things in the camp to try to draw us out of the city. Why don't you send five horses with five men, five men on five horses out, and let's see if this is true. We have a lot of horses in the city, king, so if none of them come back, we're still going to be okay. That's what I gather from this here. If the king's servant were wise in the scriptures... He would have said to his king, this is nothing short of that which Elisha spake yesterday. That fine flour and barley would be sold for a shekel by this time tomorrow. But this servant, along with his king's silly paranoid assumptions, just went along with the king. He suggested sending five horses with men on them to scout out the Syrian camp. He reassured the king there were plenty of horses left in the city. And we might conclude from that selling point that these horses were about to be on the dinner table. Remember, there was a famine. And he didn't want the king, this shallow, spiritually weak king to think we're going to run out of food if we send these horses out and they don't come back verse 14 they took therefore two chariot horses you see what happened there the servants said let's send out five and the king said how about two he'd make a great county commissioner wouldn't he Just, just reduce those salaries a little more they sent out two And the king sent after the host of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So the king wasn't willing to send five horses, just two. Not only did he not trust God to take care of Samaria, he also did not trust that he could spare five horses, only two. He was sending those two horses and those two horsemen after the Syrian army which would surely result in their deaths or their captivity if they were caught. Verse 15, And they went after them unto Jordan. And Loa all the way was full of garments and vessels which the Syrians had cast away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. The way, that is, the path between the camp of the Syrians around Samaria and the Jordan, and I'm assuming the Jordan River here, that whole way was strewn with articles. Have you all ever seen helicopter photos of the the valley, the border crossings and the trails that the illegals and the coyotes take, the drug mules and all of that, and make these precious little children march on out in the, in the hot it's littered with clothing and trash, and it's, it's just despicable. So if you think about these Syrian soldiers, when they ran away, it's apparent that some of them fled with their lives only, but others said, well, I'm, I'm going to take one or two things with me. Well, you realize pretty quickly when you're running and you have objects in your arms, especially if one weighs more than the other, it's weighting you down. And it's a lot easier just to drop it on the ground and to keep going. Sometimes that's what shoplifters do when they run away from loss prevention. They've got the goods in their hand and they realize, "Uh uh-oh, I can't keep carrying this TV and run from that police officer I'll throw it to the side. But all the way from Samaria to the Jordan River, there were Syrian garments and vessels. So these two men on the horses had gone all the way to Jordan and They were able to come back and tell the king this was so. And so this discovery would let the king know and the king's household know the Syrians were not waiting in ambush. That was his original theory. Verse 16, and the people went out and spoiled the tents of the Syrians... So a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. It said they spoiled the tents. That means they plundered, they pillaged, they ransacked, took what they they wanted, what they could get their hands on to the point of redeeming the other stuff useless. And that's what the word spoil implies is to plunder and render the rest useless. Now the prophecy came to pass just as Elisha said it would back in verse 1. But you know, that's not the only thing Elisha prophesied. Let's read verse 17. Actually, I want to reread verse 2 and then verse 17. Look back in verse 2, same chapter. Then a Lord on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be. And he, that's Elisha, said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but shalt not eat thereof. Don't forget about that. Verse 17, And the king appointed the Lord on whose hand he leaned, that's the same guy from verse 2, to have charge of the gate, that's the city gate. And the people trod upon him in the gate, and he died as the man of God had said, who spake when the king came down to him. Look how God's providence arranged for this to happen too. That man, that servant Whether he believed Elisha or not Was probably thinking Huh, he said I'm going to see this But I'm not going to eat of it Maybe it won't taste very good That's why I won't eat of it Maybe uh, I'll have something else to eat Or maybe I'll get sick Or I'll be away on a mission that day Maybe that's what he means No, Elisha meant you're going to die And by his own king The one whom he served, the one who leaned on his hand all this time by his own king, the servant was assigned to the very place he would die. He was given charge not of the fish gate nor of the dung gate, but the gate where the people went in and out in such volume as to tread upon him We'd call that a stampede, wouldn't we, until he died. These were starving people who were trying to get to their food source outside the gate of the city. And I'm sure all the other gates were empty and unmanned. Who needs to go out the other gates when the food is through this gate? Only the gate leading to the Syrian camp was of interest to these people at this time. And these physically starving people trampled this spiritually starving servant who had despised and mocked Elisha's prophecy and who cast doubt upon the capacity of the windows of heaven to dispense enough fine flour and barley to flood the market of Samaria. He paid for his unbelief with his life. Verse 18, And it came to pass, as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying two measures of barley for a shekel and a measure of fine flour for a shekel shall be tomorrow, about this time in the gate of Samaria. The words that are key in this verse, and it came to pass as the man of God had spoken. The actual fulfillment of the prophecy is wonderful, and it saved many people from hunger. But these words, it came to pass as the man of God had spoken, extend beyond this one verse. As you study the Bible, you will find prophecies that were fulfilled in the Bible. You have a Bible prophecy like this one. It was fulfilled the next day. You'll find prophecies that have a near fulfillment like this one and then a far fulfillment, one that is spiritual or that is going to occur way down the road. And then you'll have prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled. Jesus will come in the clouds, he'll gather his people, it hasn't been fulfilled yet. So when you read about a prophecy that has been fulfilled, such as in our text, don't just go, wow, that's amazing. Well, it is amazing. But let it strengthen your faith. So that the prophecies that have not been fulfilled will just as surely come to pass in your mind. You'll say, this is just pre-written history is all that is. It's going to happen. It's as good as it already happened. It's going to happen just as sure as this one did happen as the Bible records. Now the second thing I want you to see about this sentence is that what the man of God said is mentioned here. The man of God. Who said it? It was the man of God. It's not what Nostradamus said, or some great ruler, or some philosopher, or an economist, but what the man of God said. And that's what you better be listening for. And to you, to us, men of God, watching online, wherever, we better be speaking what God says. And only then can we be sure that what we say will come to pass. So if I read you a prophecy in here, and I look at you and say, that's going to happen, you can bank on it. I say that with confidence, not because I'm such a persuasive guy, but because God's word's true, and I know I'm reading from it. You want to know one reason why many people, Have had trouble trusting God's word. Satan and all of his devices have hindered their learning and their faith. And one of those devices is someone who says he's a man of God. Or a woman who says she's a woman of God. Or an it who says he's an it of God. Who holds a Bible in his hand. Just like this. And even reads from it. That's good stuff. And this says something about it that God doesn't say. Something that contradicts God's word. And when that thing that contradicts God's word does not come to pass. Shows itself to be harmful and untrue. Then everything else that man says about God's word. Even the good and the true stuff leaves that poor hearer in doubt. They say, wait a minute. Pastor so-and-so said that this was all true, and I found out it's not. So when he said God created the heavens and the earth, don't know about that either. You see how that goes? Well, we know that's true. In his book, In Defense of Israel... Pastor John Hagee, I'm sure most of you have heard of him, he wrote, this is quote from his book, I'm delighted to present my latest book, In Defense of Israel. This book will expose the sins of the fathers and the vicious abuse of the Jewish people. In Defense of Israel will shake Christian theology. It scripturally proves that the Jewish people as a whole did not reject Jesus as Messiah. It will also prove that Jesus did not come to earth to be the Messiah, end quote. Well, the problem with those statements is that they're not true. That's the problem. In John chapter 4, verses 25 through 26, John 4, 25 through 26, Jesus is speaking to a woman. It said, The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he has come, he will tell us all things. Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee, am he. She said, the Messiah is going to come and teach us all things. He's going to be called the Christ. And Jesus said, that's me. John Hagee says, it will prove Jesus did not come to earth to be the Messiah. So although John Hagee has said many things about God's word that are true, this is not. And what happens to his listeners, especially the ones who follow every word he says and read all of his books and go to all of his seminars and just hang on what Pastor Hagee says? When they figure out that he spoke that which is against Jesus' own words, then they may begin to believe that everything John Hagee said is a lie. And that's not the case. On Twitter he wrote, Without God we are nothing, just a shell without a soul. But with him we are complete and we have a soul full of love, hope, and happiness. Amen. But if, if I'm his listener, if I'm his church member, and I follow everything he says, and I find out, hey, wait a minute, you said Jesus didn't come to earth to be Messiah. Jesus said he did. Are you sure that without God we're nothing? But there will be some who took him to be a man of God and may be hindered from believing truth he spoke because of a lie he spoke. So men of God, that's all of us who are men of God, those who claim to speak and to teach God's word. Let us speak what God wrote and say about it only that which is true So our dear listeners will never be hindered from believing the truth because of our lies. And people of God, when the man of God speaks the word of God, then you better believe every bit of it. You can say, well, I don't know about that. Well, is it in here? Then I don't need to convince you. If I've read it to you and taught you the sense of it, what it means, then you're left with the choice to believe it or not. But I don't want your unbelief to be driven by my lies and so I pray before I study my lessons and before I teach here God help me to teach it just like you want it taught help me to teach it like you taught it to me cuz I know he didn't teach it to me wrong and so I don't want to teach it wrong verse 19 and that lord that's that lord answered the man of god and said now behold if the lord should make windows in heaven might such a thing be this is a replay of verse The first few verses of the chapter. And he said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but shalt not eat thereof. And so it fell out unto him, for the people trod upon him in the gate, and he died. All right, that's how the prophecy came to pass. He saw all of this fine flour and barley in abundance being sold for a shekel, and then he got stampeded to death by the people who were enjoying the blessing. That's a tough lesson to learn, isn't it? Let's go to verse 8. Chapter 8, excuse me. Chapter 8, verse 1. Then spake Elisha unto the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise and go thou and thine household and sojourn wherever thou canst sojourn. For the Lord hath called for a famine, and it shall also come upon the land seven years. You all remember this, dear woman? Her son had died and she laid him upon a bed and left him in the hands of the man of God, which meant she left him in God's hands. And God restored this boy to life through the actions of Elisha. And so Elisha had great compassion on this faithful woman. And he sent her and her family off to somewhere besides Samaria. He said, get out of here, go journey somewhere else, but not here. Anywhere you can find to live. For the Lord hath called for a famine. This is why she was told to relocate. Now, there had been a famine, and now there was great abundance. And so we may conclude that there would not be a famine wherever this woman went. Else Elisha could have just said, look, there's going to be a worldwide famine all over the globe. So no matter where you go, you're going to die or you're going to starve nearly unto death. But he said the Lord had called for a famine. If she had, if there was going to be a famine where she would live, she could just stay home and die in Samaria. It'd be a lot more convenient, wouldn't it? And for seven years, he said this famine will come upon the land seven years. Now seven is the number of divine perfection. If you're new to Bible numerology, we just look at the uses of the number seven. We don't have this fancy math problem we do and try to add a bunch of things up, although there are some places where a little bit of math does help you understand numerology. But seven is a number of divine perfection. In seven days, God created all things. Yes, even the day of rest. He made that. Did you know he made the day of rest? He rested from his works, but he made the day of rest to rest from his from his works, from his labor. Mark Mark 2.27, Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. See there, the Sabbath was made. Seven years is the number of trumpets that will sound there in the book of Revelation and the number of seals that will be opened. And if you missed the study of the book of Revelation, I encourage you to go way back on Facebook and pull those lessons up and started chapter 1 verse 1 that was a great great study sure enjoyed that but god has also used a seven year famine before this time in 2nd kings back in genesis chapter 41 verses 28 through 30 genesis 41 28 through 30 this is what god said this is the thing which i have spoken unto pharaoh What God is about to do, he showeth unto Pharaoh. Behold, there come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, and there shall arise after them seven years of famine, and all the plenty shall be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine shall consume the land. It said what God is about to do. Lest anybody read that and say, well, it, they, they just had an unlucky few years. They just had a few bad years. Uh, you know, global warming and all that caught up with them. And no, it said what God is about to do. That's another, if you read that verse, then you come away with the same conclusion you do when you read this verse For the Lord hath called for a famine. So don't think that God hasn't and doesn't bring famine upon a country and when he does it he uses it for a purpose and he's about to do it again in Israel verse 2 and the woman arose and did after the saying of the man of God and she went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years you know that reminds me of the faith that Abraham had he left his homeland he knew not where he was going but he knew God was going to get him wherever he needed to be This woman didn't know where she was going. She didn't have a a verbo cottage rented on a canal somewhere where she could endure the famine. She just went out. She sojourned wherever she could go. And she ended up in the land of the Philistines. And we learned a lot about faith during suffering when we read about this woman earlier in 2 Kings. Oh, she had suffering a lot worse than a famine. She'd lost her son. And she learned a lot about faith and suffering, too. And her answer here leaves no doubt that she believed what the man of God said. She went to the land of the Philistines. What a shame that it would be better for her to live in the land of the Philistines than in her own land. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verses 19 through 22. Matthew eleven nineteen through 22. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber and a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of her children. Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. That's the key right here. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And in our text, we could say it will be more tolerable for the land of the Philistines. as. They were Gentiles. They were the enemies of God and God's people. it would be more tolerable for the land of the Philistines in the day of judgment, this famine, than it would be for Israel. Israel is going to have a famine, the Philistines are not. Verse 3. And it came to pass at the seven years' end that the woman returned out of the land of the Philistines, and she went forth to cry unto the king for her house and for her land. She came back to a land that had endured famine. One thing I want you to notice is she did not stay in the land of the Philistines. She came back after seven years. Now, when you are living somewhere for seven years, you get pretty comfortable. You find a way to do that. Even if your seven years is in prison, you find a way to make your cell as accommodating as the taxpayers will allow, which apparently is quite a bit. She didn't stay in the land of the Philistines. She was on a journey there, not to live among the Philistines the rest of her days. You know, she could have said, I like it over here. I like the flesh pots and I like the garlic. I like the, the, the onions. I think I'll stay. After all, there's no famine here. She could have said, why? why would I want to go back to a country that has just recovered from a famine? What if it happens again? No, she came home. And she wanted her land back and she wanted her house back. And these were legal rights to the possession of her of a land and a house. These were legal rights she had and she pleaded to the king for them. And we'll pick up there next week with verse 4. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the attention given to your word today. Thank you for those who hunger and desire to grow in their faith and Lord we pray that during the next hour our singing our praying the thoughts and intents of our hearts the preaching of your word that it would all be pleasing to you directed by your spirit and Lord let us just enjoy our time here as we're taught by the Bible so that when we go forth we'll be equipped as you would have your saints to be until Jesus comes again And it's...